because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Uh, before I introduce today's guest, I just want to give you a little bit of background. Those of us who support fossil fuels and more broadly energy freedom face seemingly huge odds in the political world and increasingly in the corporate world with the whole anti-fossil fuel, what's often called ESG movement. And I think many people feel this hopelessness with regard for economic freedom in general. Um, I mean, we're just recording this on a Wednesday and I guess the Democrats have taken over presidency, House and Senate, and then we have what look like riots in DC by some people on the right. So this is not a good time in terms of freedom in the world and the ascent of freedom. And so I think many people think there's businesses are just gonna get more and more strangled and there's not really a coherent, rational uh, alternative from the right. And so it can, it can seem very difficult. Now I, I tend to be optimistic in the sense that I think there's a lot that we can improve as advocates of freedom. And anytime I believe there's a lot we can improve, uh, I'm optimistic because then we can focus on doing things better and there's hope. But one particular and intriguing cause for hope I got several years ago was uh, my guest today, I'll bring him on in a second, Ankar Gatte. He gave a speech about how business could stand up for itself. And I've thought about this issue a lot over the last 20 years, but it made a point that I really found, points that I found illuminating and I thought it would help me and my listeners a lot. So uh, first, let me welcome him. Uh, Ankar, you've been on the show before. Ankar Gatte, welcome to Power Hour. Welcome back. Hey Alex, good to be here again. Okay, so I wanna start off with a point that you made, which I found inspiring. And you made this, so the speech was called, you can find it on YouTube and I'll, I'll try to make sure to link to it. Um, it's something like freedom and the need for business to stand up, or I'll find the exact title, but it's about freedom and business standing up for themselves and for freedom. And you made this point that even though things can seem very difficult today, there are times in history where there were causes that arguably seemed much more hopeless than freedom today, and yet they've succeeded throughout history. So can you talk about that and what, what we can learn from this? In the talk, I focused on three American examples, and we are really talking about an American context. The, the fight against slavery and the movement to abolish slavery. If you're in the early 1800s, it's a small movement. It seems hopeless. The idea that in 50 years or a little less, you would see a civil war and that they would win the civil war and you would have the abolishment of slavery as a result of that, I think would have seemed a pipe dream. But if you look at what they did, you can learn, I think, a number of lessons about what they did and why a seemingly small, hopeless cause was able to succeed. The other that I brought up are the civil rights movement in the 20th century and the gay pride movement in the 20th century as well. But you could bring up others, for instance, the women winning the right to vote that I think has a similar dynamic. So it's useful if you feel pessimistic and you want hope to look at movements and here there are movements that succeeded against the odds, I think, and accomplished something positive. And that there's a lot to learn from them. Okay, well, so one of the big lessons you talked about, so I'll have you elaborate on is the power of fighting on the grounds of justice. Yes, I think, and again, I think it's particularly powerful in an American context, and we can talk a little bit about that. But I think in general, when you see causes, good causes winning out, they frame the issue as an issue of justice. And framing it as an issue of justice is one, it's framing it as a moral issue, but in particular, it's framing it as we've earned something. We've earn something and we deserve, as a result of what we've done and earned, we deserve something better. We deserve better treatment. And then it's appealing to the people in the society that you're not acting properly. You're not actually giving us what we've earned and what we've deserved. And a decent person cares if you tell him you're not acting justly, you're not doing what's right. You're treating people not how they deserve to be treated. A decent person takes that seriously, that you're, you're saying that there's something wrong in the way I'm acting, the way I'm functioning. 
And so you're appealing to the best in people and you're saying that you've earned something. And this is why I think it's particularly in an American context that it's powerful. It's not only, but America is a land in which we think of it as you're free, you're free to earn your own way, you want to pay for what you get, and if you've earned it, you deserve it. So when you think of just, if you take the kind of the, the 19th century perspective of all these immigrants coming to America, they're escaping various injustices in their home countries. And I think they think of it like that. We're escaping injustice, persecution, ill treatment. And in America, what we're going to find is we're gonna be treated justly. That if we earn our way, we'll be able to succeed. And if we don't, then we'll fail, but we'll fail or succeed based on what we do and what we earn. And that, that's an idea that's at the core of the American uh, psyche, I think. And so when you frame things in terms of we're being treated unjustly and we deserve better, that is a powerful argument. One thing this brings to mind is that in the US context and probably around the world, businessmen almost never say we earned it, you know, we deserve it. It stands out when people do. I mean, even just Jerry Seinfeld, who I'm a big fan of, he notably does this. Like if people criticize him for buying Porsches, he's like, I earned it. Like I can do whatever I want. I don't have to give back anything. And people are pretty disarmed when that happens. And yet the common thing is to say, oh, you by hurting us, the business, you're going to hurt society. You're going to hurt yourself somehow. And that seems to fall flat. Why is that? It's because, I mean, one deep moral reason is the person who says, I've earned it, um, I deserve it. It's, I don't have to give it back. I didn't exploit people. I didn't steal it. He's exhibiting a real pride and self-esteem. I think this is what you respond to in Jerry Seinfeld. It's, it's I've earned it. I spent a lot of years as a stand-up comic. I uh, honed my craft. I had a super successful television series. And people can see, yeah, I mean, he did work really hard. He did earn this. And he's exhibiting that it's like, I take a pride in what I've done. And the idea that you're going to tell me there's something illegitimate about it, I've exploited people, I have to give back, there's something deeply wrong with that. And I think it's at that individual level that when you see a person who's saying, no, what I've done is good, and I should be recognized for having done something good, not vilified for it, that it, it's interesting and it puts people on, the, on guard to, and indeed it so you would have to challenge and say, no, you haven't earned it. You actually didn't accomplish anything. So, And for something like Jerry Seinfeld, it's obviously not true. Well, interestingly, I, I still want to ask the other part of my question, but I don't know if I told you this or you followed it, but there was a CEO in the oil and gas industry recently who wrote this open letter to the company, the North Face, because the North Face refuses to make jackets that have oil and gas companies affiliated with them. He wrote this open letter and it got a lot of circulation and nobody really had a response, but it was very, it was very unusual in that his focus was, I'm really proud to work in this industry. I'm proud of what I do. And I was, I was happy he cited moral case for fossil fuels as the inspiration for this, but it's just notable how much that stood out versus just kind of a generic, hey, if you, if you shackle us, if you pass this tax, if you pass this regulation, it's going to be bad for you, but not saying it's wrong for me. So I'm curious, why does it why do you think it falls flat when you just say, oh, it's all about other people and, and not talk about myself or the injustice toward me? It falls flat. One significant reason is it's not true. It's so, in the, if a businessman tells you like, I, I'm doing this only for the customer. We're not after profits. We don't care about expanding and growing our business and becoming better and, and larger. And we might buy other businesses. So, if it's no, it's just about the little guy and the person who's not doing well, that's who we care about. So it falls flat because it's people recognize there's a certain hypocrisy to it, or at least it's just an insincerity. It's they don't really believe this is not really what they're doing. And the and that conveys also a kind of moral cowardice. It's we're not going to tell you what we're really doing because what we're really doing is no good. 
So we're going to pretend this is what we're doing and we're going to couch it in terms that everyone would say this is moral, even though that's not actually what we're doing. And that you're not going to inspire people if you do that. I mean, one thing this brings up, I don't even think I mentioned in the intro. So you're a senior fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute where you know we used to work together and you've I've, I've credited you a lot with helping me with developing my ideas. One thing that is remarkable about Ayn Rand is I think almost anyone would agree she's inspired more people to value economic freedom, certainly to emotionally value it than just about anyone, including the attackers. And I think the most ideological attackers like a Paul Krugman or a Bill McKibben really regard her as like as way too influential in the world. And one thing you notice about her book, particularly Atlas Shrugged, is she has a character, Hank Reardon. And a lot of the book is about the injustice of society toward him. And as a reader, you so empathize with him and people feel passionately defending this multi-multi-millionaire. He'd probably be a billionaire in today's context because the book mm -hmm. was in 1957. So what is it about that dynamic that, because most people would say that's impossible. Like if you said before, I'm going to write a book about a businessman and he's going to be this sympathetic character and I'm going to make the audience care about him so much. I don't think anyone would believe it. And yet they do. So what's going on there? I think part of what is happening is she has a distinctive view of what businessmen do. And it's a first-handed view. It's not the caricature. So the caricature is that businessmen, I mean, think of someone just in cartoons, say, of Scrooge McDuck. He has a whole bunch of wealth. He sits on it. Um, he bathes in it. So you ask, like, how did he get it? There's no answer to that. What does a businessman do? And most it's a paper pusher. He orders other people around and then exploits them. They, it, it's the workers who do all the work and the businessman just skims off the top. To the extent that there's a view of what a businessman does, that's the view. And to say it's a caricature is, is a compliment to it. It's such a distortion of what businessmen actually do and what the profession of business is. And I think what Atlas Shrugged does is it really showcases this is the kind of thinking that a business person engages in. This is the kind of courage and integrity it has, it ha one has to have to have a vision of I'm going to create something new, something wonderful. You brought up Reardon, who's one of the, Hank Reardon, one of the central businessmen in, in the story. He invents a new metal. He has a vision for what this metal, how it can transform industry. He's like a Steve Jobs, uh, Bill Gates in his vision of like, this is what I can accomplish. This is what I want from my career. And you see some of the thinking. And so you see the intelligence, the ambition, the courage it takes. And you see a lot of the moral dimension, the commitment, the, the perseverance, the integrity, even when all kinds of people or doubting you and saying this can't be done and this is crazy. And so it's, they hold fast to their vision and you see this dramatized in the story. So the more you get an idea of, oh, so this is what businessmen do, the more you have respect for it and the more you'll see how unusual when you're talking about these businessmen who transform industries like a Steve Jobs or a Bill Gates, you see how rare that skill and set of abilities is and how valuable it is. And so the idea that you would um, either just sort of disregard these people, let alone vilify them, becomes as you read the story in Atlas and you see it dramatized, it becomes more and more monstrous that that's what your attitude is towards businessmen. And it, so it really challenges you at a personal level, but it's, I think part of what it does is it showcases this is the actual productive actions that a business person engages in and how productive it actually is. One thing you mentioned earlier was that it's, it's a sign of self-esteem when you stand up for justice. And one of my views about businessmen not standing up is there's almost always some sort of self-esteem issue which relates to a moral clarity issue. Like the example I always use is the coal miners. You know, in the coal miners, it used to be if you thought about cutting their wage by one cent, you had hell to pay. And it was just like, we earned this, this was good, et cetera. But then when Obama said, I'm going to destroy the coal industry, you know, you're ruining the planet, you had barely a peep 
from the coal industry. So it's the same people, including the coal miners, but in one issue, they had tremendous moral confidence and then they had none. And so that signifies to me, it's, it's a lack of moral clarity in the area. And so that, that raises the issue. Um, what, what would you say are the injustices that are happening to industry? Because I don't think, and let's take fossil fuel industry, which obviously I focus on. I think people in that industry are often unclear that there are really injustices and certainly about the magnitude of them. I think the principal injustices, and I mean, I think a lot of your work focuses on this, is how tremendously valuable, and that's an understatement, the fossil fuel industry is. It's a really an irreplaceable industry. The, so before getting to it's treated in negative, bad ways, the primary, it should be treated as an enormously positive thing in the way that we think of medicine, say and modern medicine and the development of antibiotics, vaccine, cancer-fighting drugs, now a vaccine against COVID, that, that we view it as, this is tremendous accomplishments, tremendously beneficial, the creation of values, you should respect and look up to these people. The same should be true of the, of the fossil fuel industry in general, like the medical industry, and of the leaders and pioneers in the field that the modern world requires energy on a global scale. And there's one industry and only one industry that has accomplished that and that's the fossil fuels. So the primary injustice is this is something enormously positive that at best is treated indifferently and today is treated as an enemy. So then what are the I mean, one thing they might say is, and you've partially addressed this, they might say, oh, but nobody wants to hear the fossil fuel industry defend the fossil fuel industry. I, I have some sympathy for that in this sense, that if you look at the causes that succeeded, like the fight against slavery and abolition or the civil rights movement, I think there is a truth when you look at the dynamics of what goes on, that if it's only if it's only the people who are being treated unjustly who speak out, that's not sufficient. So if it's only ex-slaves who are talking about abolition of slavery, this is a cause we should support, this is, we need to do this, or if it's only blacks in the 20th century civil rights movements who are speaking out, look, these laws and segregation and so on is enormously unjust. It's not evident that you'll succeed, but I think it's necessary that both ex-slaves will have to talk about the enormous horrors and injustice of slavery and blacks have to talk about what it is like to live under segregation. And if you do that, what you're trying to do is win the better people to your cause so that it's people outside of the fossil fuel industry who start to think, yeah, maybe we have treated this industry badly. Maybe we should have a more positive view of it than we have. And you need people in the industry talking about it. So if all you had is the fossil fuel industry talking about how great the fossil fuel industry is, you might not succeed on a cultural level. But I think it's a necessary step to win other people over that it's actual people in the industry think that what they're doing is good. And maybe I should rethink this. But if people in the industry won't talk about the good that they're doing, why is anybody else going to think, oh, there's something good here, and maybe we're looking at this in the wrong way, and maybe we're sort of passively committing injustice towards it, if not actively? I mean, one kind of standard response I have to the thing I raised is they definitely listen when you don't speak. So if, if everyone is saying you're destroying the planet, you're destroying the world, and you sidestep that, you keep silent, then that's very revealing. Because if somebody said, hey, like, you know, publicly said, hey, Ankar Gatte is a mass murderer, like, of course, you're going to respond. You're going to say no, and I'm actually a good person. And so when it's basically, yeah, the industry is being, I remember in um, 2012, I debated this guy, Bill McKibben, and the, the mm -hmm. impetus was he wrote this article saying, the fossil fuel industry is planetary enemy number one. And I was waiting for the industry to respond and say, okay, look, he's just said, you're the most evil thing on the planet. And nobody responded. And I thought, oh, somebody has to respond. So I'll debate, I'll publicly challenge this guy to a debate. But I, and we look at what happened, you know, he did that as the basis of the modern divestment 
movement, like anti-fossil fuel movement in finance, which has subsequently blown up. And part of it was they had a moral monopoly uh, going through the present. Yeah. And if you think of what goes on sort of in the bystander's mind, it it's something like this, I think. It's, okay, maybe this accusation is over the top. It's too strong. It's too severe. But if the people being accused of mass murder don't say anything, it's there's got to be something at least to this accusation that they won't defend themselves. And I think that's part of the dynamic that you look guilty, even if the person sort of the bystander doesn't think, yeah, you've committed all the crimes that have been listed. You must have done something that you're unwilling to speak up and defend yourself. I want to talk about some specific strategies for fossil fuel industry, but one, one I want to address a broader point first. One point you made in your talk is you talked about how there's a general injustice in the modern regulatory state in terms of treating businessmen as guilty until proven innocent. And I think this is a point that almost nobody thinks about. I think most people consider the modern regulatory state to be just, and then sometimes they think, oh, it, it oversteps. So I would re really like to hear your view on this, and I think people would benefit from it a lot. Yeah, this is a view that Ayn Rand stressed that in terms of thinking about the mentality that drives regulations, modern regulations, regulations in the 20th and now into the 21st century, the whole, I think of it as a regulatory welfare state that we have now, that it's premised on the idea that um, the pursuit of profit is bad, that there's something wrong, ignoble, evil about it. And, and too many businessmen act like this. We were just talking about the idea that they don't defend, look, I'm creating something valuable. I'm earning my way. I should be profiting. They too often try to say, well, no, it's not about profits and so on. It's about helping other people. So they lend to this whole atmosphere that there's something in, in the profit motive inherently suspect. And if you think that, then you're thinking, like this, you look at businessmen and you think of them as it's a crime waiting to happen. They're going to do something sooner or later, and it's sooner than later, that is bad, evil, wrong, because their whole motivation is the wrong motivation. And rather than, you could, so it's put as preemptive law, and you can think of it like a preemptive strike in a military situation. And there is a situation where it would, it's legitimate, where you think, look, they're imminently gonna attack us. And instead of waiting until they've come over the borders and are attacking us, we're gonna launch a preemptive strike. And preemptive law in effect is that mentality that a businessman is a disaster waiting to happen. And we've got to shackle him before that disaster happens. And so we need to pass regulations, take something like the FDA and the food aspect of it, that businessmen are going to peddle um, poisonous food or food that has been unsafely packaged and, and is, is uh, harboring all kinds of bacteria and so on. We need to send in the inspectors to stop this because that's what they would do if they're really pursuing profit. And the, if that's your basic way of looking at businessmen, then preemptive law seems like, yeah, this is a good thing. We have to prevent them from harming us before they do. And their whole motivation is they want to harm and they want to exploit. So what should, I mean, I think most people aren't even aware of an alternative to this because it just seems like, oh, you either have the modern regulatory state or it's just lawlessness. So what what should pro-freedom businessmen advocate as an alternative and how should they do it? So there's two things. This is one of the important reasons why it's, I think if we're to move in the direction of more economic freedom and more freedom for businessmen, you need business standing up for itself. You need businessmen and businesswomen, all people in the industry to say this in effect, to say, this cultural portrait of us, that we're a disaster or a crime waiting to happen is just fundamentally mistaken. And you need it at an individual level that it's like, this is how you view me. This is not how I view myself. This is not what I'm about. What I'm about is creating values 
I have an image and a world that I'm moving forward. It's positive. I'm trying to create values. I want to trade with people. I want to profit in doing it. We get better together. This, so this whole view that the relationships in business and trade are exploitative, that one, people, one person loses and the other wins, it's businessmen first and foremost who have to say, this is not true. This is not the way we function. And then, so that would get rid of the whole emphasis on what we need is preventive law. We have to shackle and control them because if we left them free, they'll do all kinds of evil things. And then what you would have is, yes, there have to be real laws on the books against fraud and there's various forms of fraud. There can be people who are trying to exploit, to defraud, to in effect engage in transactions that are not win-win. But we have laws on the books against these things. They need to be enforced. But it's not like in the 19th century, fraud and things like that were um, not illegal. So, but you have to make a distinction between the actual laws that should be on the books because they are stopping action that should be criminal and laws that, so what regulation, I think of the better term is controls. It's you want to control the person because you think if they were left free, they will do evil things. And that is, that is our portrait of businessmen and women, but it's not true. Got it. Okay, that's that's. There's, I'm tempted to talk a lot about that, but there are other things uh, to talk about. So let's talk about what the fossil fuel industry, in particular, can do. So you gave a broad idea of they should portray themselves positively this way. Um, what about in today's political world? And I mean, we're you know we're heading. I guess we now have looks like a Democratic president and Senate and Congress. So there's going to be a big agenda uh, for mass restrictions on fossil fuels. What should the industry do in this climate in the political world? Related to the to the emphasis on the positive is that what the proposals and whether it's Green New Deal or some watered down versions of this, what they really amount to are destruction of the positive. And the more the industry talked about, so both on the pot that this is what we do, and this is what life would be like without us. And you can take a, a, a lesson from Atlas Shrugged here. Part of the story of Atlas Shrugged is you think businessmen as creators, they're villains, they exploit you. This is what the world would look like without business in it and businessmen. I think part of what the fossil fuel uh, industry would need to do, in, in, and you put it at the kind of political level and the level of laws, it's to emphasize how destructive some of what is being proposed is. And destructive, not just it's going to cost a lot of money. It's going to create uh, a world in which we have much less energy to use per capita. And that's an enormously impoverished uh, impoverished world. And the more the experts in the industry talked about this, the better, I think, the, the chances of avoiding real political legal um, controls that are going to decimate the industry, the better the chance that, that there's people in Congress who will say, yeah, this is, this is too destructive. I mean, one thing that strikes me as you're talking about that was that the industry, like one thing it generally doesn't do is say that it's uniquely good or particularly good in any way. They'll often just say, oh, like we produce energy and solar and wind produce energy. And so people have this very egalitarian view of energy versus no, what the fossil fuel industry has done. It's done this unique thing. I think you described it as irreplaceable. And the more people get the idea of, oh, we, we've done this amazing achievement. Like nobody else can produce energy at this low cost, with this reliability, with this versatility on this scale. Like nobody else is close. We welcome competition, but we are completely, but if you if you forcibly outlaw us, nobody is even close and there'll be mass suffering. I think the more there's that pride and explanation of the superiority, uh, the better. Yes. And if you think um, in industries that this is done a little better, 
and get go back to medicine that people respect and think of the people in the field as like these are great creators and benefactors. The vaccine and anti-vaccine movement, I think the defenders of vaccines are better in that they exhibit a real pride. Like, look, we've liberated the human race from disease. And the 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 innovators in vaccines, they're benefactors on an enormous scale. And the idea that we would throw all this away, and even if you thought, I don't think, but even if you thought like vaccines do have some side effects and you have to worry about it. The idea that the solution is uh, don't vaccinate um, is, is crazy. And the people see that more, I mean, much, much more than for the fossil fuels. And that's partly, not wholly certainly, but partly as a result of the industry not speaking up for itself and not exhibiting the pride that it should in what it's accomplished. Let's turn to another front of the battle, which is the corporate world. So as I mentioned, and you know, increasingly in the corporate world, oil and gas companies, coal company, I mean, there's this movement. I mean, let's take one example in particular. There is this mass movement now to stop lending to fossil fuel companies. So to not bond them for insurance, to not give them money for other things. And it's it's very self-righteous. Like, oh, you know, we're doing a good thing. Now there's a part of this is there's a regulatory component that influences some of this stuff, but there's also just a straight kind of cultural component. So how would you uh, advocate based on some of the ideas we're talking about that fossil fuel industry responds to that of people saying, yeah, we're not gonna give you money or lend you money because you're bad. The, it's again, one element I think is the more they exhibited pride and a real self-esteem in their accomplishment, the more other people would be ready to take that stand. So when you get these kinds of pressure group um, movements against a company or an industry, one of the things that you would hope would happen, and if, if people involved in the industry can help make happen, is other groups bringing up saying, no, I'm proud to invest in the fossil fuels. We're gonna invest more. This is a life-saving industry um, and a life-giving industry. We're proud to be associated with it. But if the very people in the industry aren't proud to be associated with the industry, you can't expect third parties to say that. Um, I mean, to give a, a different kind of example, when the I was just doing a podcast where we we're talking about the Danish cartoon crisis. And the, so there were boycotts in part of the Middle Eastern world of we're not going to buy Danish goods and so on. And there were counter things. And I was part of this is like, I'm going to go out of my way to buy Danish goods. I think something that the, the newspaper that printed these cartoons because they were investigating if there's real self-censorship in uh, in Europe in regard to Islam and depictions of Muhammad, I think they were doing something good. And there's people boycotting them. I'm going to support them. But it's relevant that here the Danish newspaper itself didn't back down, at least at the start, and said, no, what we did was we had to do it and we, we'd do it again. It was something good. And you can get people rallying to your cause if you think the cause is good. But if the very people in the industry don't exhibit that. The idea that you're going to get supporters saying, oh, no, we think the industry is great, even though the industry itself doesn't, that's such a harder sell. And I think in the absence of this positive case for yourself and then crusading on that basis, it's inevitably reactive. So what's happening is the other side just puts something atrocious forward, like a Green New Deal, or let's let's divest from other fossil fuels. And then it's what I call sometimes arguing to zero. You just try to nitpick it. Like they're saying, oh, this is the right thing. And you're saying, oh, but it won't work for this reason. And it won't work for that reason. But they, they will control the narrative and keep moving it. Is that your impression? Yeah, I think that's true. And, and the way you put it, that it's arguing to zero. The zero is sort of the industry hoping I hope nobody talks about us, says anything about us. There's nothing good to say. So all that can be said is really negative things. And then we'll try, as you put it, nitpick and say, well, that's not really true. And we don't pollute that much. And the, But there's nothing positive to say. So the, the ideal is nothing said. And that's why it's reactive, because they don't say anything. And they hope nobody else does. And when someone does, then it's negative And, oh, maybe we need 
can defend a little bit, but there's no grand scale case that they're making. And it, yeah, it's a disaster in terms of, and it, it's, you can think of it as public relations, but it's a disaster intellectually because what you're conveying to people who don't work day to day in the industry, don't know what it does, what happens, you're conveying to them, there's nothing worth knowing here. There's nothing good to say. Um, the best is to say nothing. And people, the more they think that, the less they're going to rally to your side. Part of the zero thing is, so there's zero, I hope they don't talk about us, but there's also the implicit zero with action is just nothing should happen. Like everything should sort of stay the same because I'm just picking on things that are new actions and I'm just saying, oh, this shouldn't happen, this shouldn't happen. I think Republicans get this too. It's like, you're the party of no. So here's a healthcare plan, you think it's bad. Here's a this plan, you think it's bad. Now, Republicans have somewhat countered that by offering their own statist plans, which is a very bad trend. But I think with the zero, so what the industry I think needs to do is, is have a positive vision of this is the positive action we're in favor of. And that includes policy-wise, but it also includes a vision of a world with more fossil fuels. And it's it's shocking. I mean, it's not shocking to me because of the narrative, but almost no company will talk about that. They'll talk about speed of transition away from fossil fuels. And yet in my experience, even just casually, if I say to someone, hey, you know what? I've, I've been studying this issue for a while and I've concluded we should actually be using more fossil fuels, not less. People find that very intriguing. Whereas if I just say, oh, yeah, we're getting rid of fossil fuels a little too quickly. Nobody has any interest. What do you think is going on there? Yes, I think it's, it's the, as you suggested, it's the same kind of issue that when you say, you know, I think we should use more fossil fuels, the translation in a person's mind, even if they're not fully conscious of it is, okay, so you think there's something good about this and we should use more of it. Versus if you say, yeah, it's we're transitioning too fast out of this. It's you're you're agree. Yeah, there's something bad about this, but it's a necessary evil, at least for the next 20 years until we've got batteries and more wind power. So, but you've conceded that, yeah, it's an evil. It might be necessary for a while versus when you say that it's, you know, I think we should actually use more. They a person gets, OK, that's a very different evaluation and you're viewing it as it's actually good. And that can be like, I've never heard that before. And unfortunately they have never heard that before. Um, and that, I think that's what intrigues. And even if the person couldn't voice like that's what's going on in his mind, I think that's what is going on in his mind. In terms of another venue where this fight exists. So there's the media and the media can seem very overwhelming because it's just day in day out stories in at least two categories. One is, okay, we're destroying the global climate system. Like the climate's becoming unlivable. And then also renewables are rapidly outcompeting and replacing fossil fuels. What are you, what, what can come, I mean, but some of these companies, they do have budgets, you know, I mean, I think, I don't know what ExxonMobil spends, but it could be, you know, usually a hundred million dollars a year. What should they be doing in larger and smaller companies? What should they be doing in the media to counter what seems like this just deluge? I mean, it is a deluge, but just completely overwhelming deluge. Um, one aspect, which you, brought up earlier is stressing that they're not against competition. So, cause one of the kind of presentations is the fossil fuels large and dominant only because it's been subsidized by government. It has all kinds of government favors and so on. They, the industry should say that we're not interested. We don't exist because of government favors. So I think that just economically and factually is, is completely wrong and indeed a smear that that the success of the fossil fuel industry is a result of government favors and subsidies. But they should also say, like, we don't want government subsidies. We don't want government favors. What we want is competition. And if various other forms of energy like nuclear can prove to be competitive, we welcome that. So that's part of it. But the more fundamental part is the media onslaught there's no chance of, of real pushback and of neutralizing all the critics after what we've been talking about, of making a real positive stand, of exhibiting some real pride and self-esteem in, in your work, in the industry's work and accomplishments. And as you've indicated, it often puts people at a loss that it's, okay, they're saying 
this is what he does is good. He's given reasons for why the fossil fuel industry has accomplished a lot and it will continue to accomplish more. So, so for the media to push back against that is a lot harder than for when the companies go on and say, yeah, like we're trying to phase out, but we don't want to do it too quickly. And we're not after profits. We're after helping people. And of course, we care about the planet. And so it's you've conceded it, all the essentials, and you make it easy for people to attack you. One question that I think about a lot that you sort of addressed, but you, you probably have more to say about is, is in, when fighting for justice, you've mentioned the positive, but then there's also an element of the negative, like you're saying I'm being mistreated. So how do the positive and the negative relate in terms of a fight for justice? The positive is the fundamental, but both are necessary. And if you go back to some of the other causes, so if you take the issue of slavery, the primary is the view that these are human beings with all the potential capacities, abilities of other human beings, they should enjoy the same freedom and the same rights, and they should be recognized by everyone in society as this is a human being. And you should have the same kind of positive view of like, this is a potentially good person and his skin color is completely irrelevant. So you, that's like, it has to be framed, I think fundamentally like that. I am a man or I'm a human being, but then it has to be, and I'm so not treated like it. And in the case of slavery, I mean, it's obvious how abysmally they're being treated, but that had to be exhibited. It had to be, and when you read about what the abolition movement does and the reason ex-slaves are talking in all kinds of towns and they're brought up, it, the full reality of the way they're actually being treated. And there was a lot of denial about, no, slavery is not that harsh and it's, it's um, don't think of it as so frightfully unjust. And, and that had to be exhibited, but I think it, if, it's only that, and you don't have the positive of, like, this is how they should be being treated. They should be being treated as though they're human beings because they are human beings. And so I think both in, in making the cause and a fight for justice, both have to be made, the positive and the negative, but the negative has to be in the context of the positive, of what part of what is so horrendous about the negative is we should have a positive orientation to, towards this. So it's the same in regard to business or particularly the fossil fuel industry. It's first and foremost, it's this is what business accomplishes in a positive way. This is like the modern world, it's unimaginable without business. And it's this is a point Ayn Rand made and if you've traveled, it really is true. When you go to unfree societies, I lived a year in Ethiopia when it was communist, you have almost every profession. You have educators, you have people in the med medical profession, doctors, nurses, you have politicians. The one profession that is glaringly absent is businessmen. There's no business, it's all controlled by the government. And that's the reason they're impoverished. So you need the positive case and then you exhibit all the ways that business, and it really is horrendous today, all the ways in which business are treated, not in a positive way, but in a negative way. And they're treated as villains when they should be treated as heroes. And if you showcase that in the context of the positive, that's then I think an, 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 it's an enormously powerful argument and it should be powerful. One thing is we're talking about the industry that strikes me, this is something I've thought about a lot over the years, and I don't have the greatest way of dealing with it. I think there can be a tendency to over-focus on the fuel with fossil fuels and not enough focus on the people and ingenuity that's going into harnessing it. And so the extreme version that I don't fall prey to is things like, okay, you know, we've been given these amazing resources in America, you know, we've been blessed with fossil fuels and we should use them. And so the fossil fuel industry is just kind of the, the vessel of, you know, delivering these from the ground to the home or to the gas station. Um, but as we're talking, it just, I mean, I, I don't, I never subscribe to that version, but it seems like the, in a sense, the more you emphasize and particularly the industry emphasizes, you know, we've achieved something, we've done it using fossil fuels. 
but we've figured out, you know, we we're the only ones in the world who figured out how to produce energy at low cost, reliably for every type of machine for billions of people in thousands of places. And yeah, we've done it using these fuels, but nobody, you know, nobody had done it before. Nobody has done it since. Of course, an individual isn't doing it themselves solely, but we're part of this legacy. And so our, you know, our industry is doing something amazing versus, oh, just fossil fuels are amazing. What do you think about that? Yes, I think that's important. And it goes back, you asked, um, you brought up the issue of what is unusual or unique about Atlas Shrugged in, in showcasing the power of business and in convincing people, at least at an emotional level, that, yeah, there's something enormously positive here. I think part of what Atlas Shrugged is doing, and it's indeed part of the theme of Atlas, is showcasing the mind's role in production. And so the businessman's mind's role. So that when we think of, uh, take a contrasting industry, when you think of Steve Jobs in high tech or in computers, you don't think of it as, okay, yeah, so what he did is he took a bunch of silicone and he put it a little bit together and then we've got something. It's, no, he had a vision and a mind and incredible perseverance to bring that vision um, and ideas into reality, but it took his mind to do it. And you take away Steve Jobs' mind and Apple disappears. People don't think of that in terms, when they think of the fossil fuel industry, it's much more like oil's bubbling up and they came and got a bucket and took the oil and poured it into our gas tanks and then our cars work. And the industry's nothing like that when you think of its actual development and all the ideas and ingenuity, the engineering, the science and the business acumen that was required to produce it and it's required to sustain it at this kind of global level with the unbelievable trade and intricacies that is the, I mean, when we talk about the fossil fuel industry, it's thousands and thousands of companies and businesses that are interacting and trading. That is such an enormous accomplishment. And it's not because of the, uh, there's fuel or oil in the ground or something. Yeah, and the more that was emphasized, the more it, people would see that these titans of industry in the same way that they think of a Steve Jobs. And that's how they should be thought of. Yeah, one thing I learned, so there, there's a version of, I think, attempting to do this that often falls flat or at least underperforms, which is sometimes the industry will say, hey, this isn't your grandfather's oil industry. Like to do fracking, you know, we go 10,000 feet under the ground to get this oil. And so the idea you get is, yeah, oil in general is like this simple thing, but then we have to do this exotic thing to get it. And then people actually think, oh, well, it must be really hard to get. And that doesn't seem like a very good idea. Let's do something simple, like just get it from the sun and the wind. So I think part of what that probably has several implications, but one is that I found that explaining the core technology and how amazing that is, is, is very powerful and very exciting. So if you think about just energy, like we figured out how to take this useless black glop, like the stuff you saw spilling in the Gulf of Mexico with that BP spill, like we figured out how to use that to fly a plane. And then for the petroleum products, you know, to make a bulletproof vest or to make a sleep number bed or to make an artificial heart, like the core of what we do is this amazing transformation of nature. I think when people get that, it totally changes their perspective. Yeah, I think that's an important point to make. And it's it's in general, I mean, it harkens back to something we were talking about, you know, the start. It's part of the whole portrait of business as they're paper pushers. They don't really do anything. The leaders of companies, CEOs, why do they get paid so much? Anybody could do it. And the more that it's emphasized that it's not just a technological issue, though the technological issues are important. And as you said, emphasizing the, the core technologies involved, and then it took real development. But part of that development is it's, it's when we talk about it as an industry, it's they figured out how to do it profitably. And anyone who's run any kind of business knows how difficult. I mean, if you run a if you run a small restaurant. There's a big difference. Anybody can run a restaurant. Can you run it profitably? That is really difficult. 
And the more you understand, like this is an industry that's figured out how to create value, which means that everybody wants to buy their product and they're able to make a product, a profit when they're selling it. That's such a tremendous achievement to have this global scale industry that the more they talked about that as well as the core technological issues and that we built a whole profitable industry, it, the better. But that requires having the self-esteem of viewing profits are good. Like this is why we're in business. This is what we're after. And if we've accomplished that we're making profits on a global scale, just as Apple makes profit, like it's enormously profitable. That's the accomplishment that you were able to do this at a global scale and be profitable doing it. And the more they emphasize that, the more people would recognize that this is an achievement that took an enormous amount of thought and ingenuity. Now, maybe if anything you've said, people might think, well, that's, how do you do that? I mean, how do you explain like, oh, this, it's good that we're profitable. So how, how would you message that, encourage them to message that to the general public who think of energy profits as, as bad? It's, it's again, it's easier in an American context because, and it, it goes back to something what we were talking about, the, why does it fall flat when industry officials, and it is not restricted to the fossil fuel industry, it's when people in business say, yeah, no, it's not about profits. It's not about us as a company growing and expanding. It's about the, who we serve and the customer. And it falls flat because nobody thinks of them as that's really what you're after. So you're camouflaging or disguising your motive. But in an American context, it's also like, that's not how I think of myself. And if I run a restaurant or if I'm just an employee, like I want it to think of it as it's profitable, that like it's worth it to me to be doing this. I'm getting paid well and so on. And the more you activate that for an, for, as I say, pretty for an American audience, it's, yeah, I mean, that's why I'm working. And that's what I'm after. I'm after growing, being paid well. And the more the industry spoke about that, like this, yeah, this is what we're about, the better it would be. Now, I mean, there's for sure for the fossil fuel industry, there's wider forces at work that if, if there's a kind of view, which is what the environmental uh, movement is pushing, that your, that your activities are inherently destructive, then profitability is taken as, okay, it's even more destructive. Like you're growing, expanding. It's a, so you're creating more destruction. And that obviously is something that has to be fought. It can't just be fought at the level of profits. It has to be fought at, no, the whole way you evaluate that what we're doing is destructive is wrong and indeed perverse. It's anti-human life and happiness. Maybe part of what's going on is with, maybe with energy in particular, the idea of like it being low, it's just kind of always assumed that any cost we pay for it is bad. Like, well, gasoline should be kind of infinitely cheap our electricity bill should be really low, our heating bill should be really low. And then if it goes up, that means we're screwed. We've been screwed by somebody versus like, no, this is something that has to be produced. Like it's really hard to produce this in a way that like it, the, the process of producing it is so involved that to make it low cost is this incredible achievement. And there's something about just viewing it as, oh, we, you know, just like Apple has won the competition to produce the best phone. It's like we, the fossil fuel company have won the competition to produce the best energy. And so if we make a profit doing that, more power to us because we've made a profit by giving you the lowest cost thing or the, you know, the best value. What, what do you think of that idea? Yeah. And there's, I, it's likely intertwined with, you brought up people paying their utility, electricity bill, water bill, gas bill, and the more it's government controlled, the more it's thought of as, um, yeah, government provides these, it should be providing these for basically free, it's not doing this, we're being screwed. The more it's thought of as a real industry that th there's people competing in it, trying, like you brought up cell phones, that they're trying to create products that are valuable to us as consumers and traders, 
they're able to profit from this is a difficult, the more it would be, yeah, and there's no way this should be free. But it's also like if you look at the oil industry, which I think comparatively, say, versus electricity is more free. Um, I mean, you might have a view that's different than that, but no, it's view, definitely true. Electricity yeah. is terrible. And if you think of oil as it's similar to other technologies, that if you're looking at inflation adjusted terms, the price is going down. And that's what you see for TV and computers and cell phones. That, that's what you would expect from an industry as it's, uh, it's maturing, it's reaching global scale and economies of scale, that it's, um, it shouldn't be free, but your experience would be it's rapidly getting better and costs, certainly costs for the same level of quality is going down. That is, it's less and less expensive to buy a computer or TV of comparative quality. And the more the industry is free, the more that would be people's experience. Got it. So one question that occurred to me as you were talking about the computer industry and how that's perceived is, I mean, the fossil fuel industry, I think of as the fundamental industry. So it's the industry that powers every other industry. And so everything about the computer industry is significantly made possible by the fossil fuel industry in terms of just, okay, well, what's powering all the machines, but also what's the, the, the computers themselves, but what's powering all the machines that build the machines, including the machines that mine and process things. And the, the digital computing industry has in general made themselves seem non-physical I think for the mm -hmm. most part, it, like, there's no thought of, oh, this is actually coming from the ground and this has to be processed and this is using a lot of fossil fuels. But it strikes me that the, the fossil fuel industry could really take credit for that. They could also take credit for like, we've freed up, you and I have talked about this a bunch, like we've freed up the time that allowed all this innovation without us with modern machine powered agriculture, like we wouldn't have time for all of these uh, innovations. So what, what do you think about the fossil fuel industry taking credit for these things that people directly value. Yes, they definitely should highlight their role in it. And if you think of commercials and the advertising from BP and others about how they're beyond petroleum and what's great about them is how they're getting off of fossil fuels. If instead of doing that, they emphasize this is our role in the modern world and this is how we've enabled all kinds of other industries and this is how intensive energy intensive the whole internet and computer revolutions are and i mean we couldn't even dream of this prior to fossil fuels to be able to do this the more they emphasize that the better it would be and it goes towards what we were talking about that they both have to emphasize the positive but they have to make more real to people if you mess with this industry, that is, if you control it to the extent of strangling it, or even just starting to strangle it, the destruction you're going to reap is not just this industry and the people in Texas and so on are going to be unemployed. It's, it's going to be cascading destruction. The more they emphasize the positive and therefore what the negative really means, so what these proposals to to outlaw all kinds of energy production, what they really amount to, the better it would be um, in terms of their argument, but the better informed people would be of the actual truth. And they could even do, I mean, you've talked about this kind of thing that it, so you say the, the tech industry have portrayed themselves as non-physical and they've also portrayed themselves as we don't need to depend on fossil fuels. We can be 100% renewable. So, and the more the fossil fuel industry talked about, like the, this is BS, really, that, that the way companies present this, this is not true, that if, if the fossil fuel industry went away, all these things would go away, the better it would be as well. And it exhibits, again, it exhibits a self-esteem that it is people say like we don't do anything we, you could get rid of us and you, maybe your energy bill goes up 20 percent or something like that it's a, and that's a total fantasy uh but what do you think can you think of a way off the top of your head i've thought about this a little bit like what ideas about like 
like saying, we're going to cut you off somehow, like, or, or at least challenging them say, look, if you don't use fossil fuels, okay, we give you a challenge. You, you get off the grid, you stop being on life support by us and you make your own solar wind and battery thing and then see how well your data centers perform. Like, what do you think they could do in terms of like actually challenging the people to live without them or, or cutting off service? Yeah, I think they could do that. And particularly when they think it's um, a company or it could even be a whole industry, but that's, that's grandstanding in the sense that the company knows full well that they're not 100% renewable. They're just trying to present this to the world because they think this is what how they'll gain acceptance and so on. And of the industry pointing out and in, in a challenging kind of way, then it's in, instead of saying this, why don't you actually do that and disconnect from the grid? So that would have a powerful effect if done right. Final question. So most justice movements, maybe all, they have a list of demands. So what should be the fossil fuel industry's list of demands? I think two basic demands, and then it, there would be specifics under this. But one demand is moral recognition and moral respect that we've accomplished something. We've earned your respect and we've earned your admiration that we've, as an industry, we've accomplished something enormously positive and it needs to be recognized. And we recognize it as such and you should recognize it as such. And the second then is that as a result of that, that we're, we're something, we've earned our standing as something enormously positive. Politically, what we deserve, what it means to respect us is to leave us free, to not control us, not subsidize us, and so, but not control us, to leave us free to function. And those are the two demands that it, moral respect and recognition. And a, as a result, you can put it equality before the law, but that means freedom. Awesome. Well, I'm, I, I really enjoyed this. And I think, you know, we've got a lot of industry people listening. And I think we saw recently with the CEO who stood up, that was a good, that was very positive. So I'm, I'm guessing we'll inspire some uh, CEOs. Any final message for people who've listened to us? that the deepest issue is first for people in the industry to really be convinced that yeah, what I'm doing is good. And the more you're convinced of it, the less it will be plausible. Yeah, but what's the point of speaking out because it's only the fossil fuel industry talking about the fossil fuel industry. So if you really deep down think, yeah, what I'm doing is good, and there's all the reason to speak up about it and to really think I can convince other good people that what I'm doing is good and they should support it. Gotcha. And where can people learn more about you and the Ayn Rand Institute? Uh, so the Institute, they can find us at aynrand.org um, and or there's ari.aynrand.org. You can find, I write and speak on New Ideal you can find that on our website under, um, I think it's under magazine. I have courses up on campus, which is a subsection of the magazine. They can find my expert page there that links to all kinds of resources as well. So the best place is to come to our website. And still not on social media, right? Yeah, not on Facebook or uh, Twitter. Yeah, well, that, that's a lesson to all of us that uh, focus can help develop our thinking. Uh, thanks so much, Ankar. Thanks, Alex. Thanks again to Ankar Gatte for joining me. Wow, I I really enjoyed that discussion. Uh, I think you got a little bit of a sense of what it's like to talk to Ankar. We, I've known him for a long time. When I, I used to work at the Ayn Rand Institute, he was definitely the person who taught me the most. And I, I've credited him numerous times as definitely the one person who's most positively influenced my thinking about fossil fuels. and. I'm grateful that in the last year and a half, I've gotten to work with him uh, quite a bit and he's helped me a bunch with the new book. So, but also I think if you see my content has improved a lot in the last year and a half, I think he's a big reason why. So it's exciting to get him here. He always has an interesting perspective on everything. And I picked up a bunch of ideas 
about what industry can do better, what I can do better. I hope it inspired you. And in particular, if you're an executive, I hope it inspired you. And if you have any thoughts you want to share to me, I just remind you as always, my email is alex at alexepstein.com. I usually put it as if you have any questions, comments, love mail or hate mail, email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Uh, but in particular on this topic, if you'd like to do more to get involved, or if you have some idea of what you know what you can do, or if you just do something, that would be even the best. Based on this, tell me about it, because we've seen with um, Adam Anderson recently, you can make an impact. And I think with my work that I've done and then today's interview, we're getting more and more of a blueprint for how industry will stand up. Speaking of blueprint, want to keep emphasizing energytalkingpoints.com posting lots of valuable material there. Also, if you are an elected official in US Congress, US Senate, or governor's office, you can join my Energy Talking Points On Demand group where you can get on-demand messaging and we have a monthly meeting. So if you're in that category or you know someone in that category, refer them to energytalkingpointsondemand.com. Also, if you're not on my mailing list, make sure to sign up at alex at alexepstein.com. So again, Alex, no. Wrong, sorry, going senile. AlexEpsteinList.com. So email me at alex at alexepstein.com. My website for signing up for the um, email list is alexepsteinlist.com. All right, my voice is fading, so that's a good signal to wrap up. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'll be back next week with another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.